Now, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles, there's pew Bibles provided there on page 18. I'm going to read this morning's passage. This is Matthew 5, 21 through 26. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going to court with him. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. You know, preachers who <clears throat> preach to the Sermon on the Mount love to refer to an article uh, that was written a number of years ago by a professor at Texas A&M, 30 some odd years ago actually. Uh, and what she had done is she had asked for her students to read the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, professor was a lady by the name of Virginia Stem Owens, and she knew that she was ministering a place where a lot of her students were good, conservative, Republican families, and so she expected them at least to be familiar with the sermon, but it turns out none of them had ever heard about it. So for many of them, they were reading the Sermon on the Mount for the first time, and she gave in this article a couple samples of their impressions that they had of it. One student wrote, there's an old saying that you shouldn't believe everything you read, and it certainly applies to this case. Another one said, you know, it's hard to believe anything that was written down so many thousands of years ago. Another one said it straightforwardly. I didn't like the essay, Sermon on the Mount. It was hard to read and made me feel like I had to be perfect, and no one is. The last student, though, was far more direct. He said, the things asked in this sermon are absurd. To look at a woman is adultery? That is the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statement that I have ever had. <laughs> uh, Owens goes on to bemoan this loss of, of biblical literacy that, of course, 30 years ago was an upcoming generation, which, by the way, now are the people that are in charge of uh, our pop culture in that regard. But she says this, she goes, as Western civilization expends what little biblical capital it has left, we may find ourselves living impoverished, not in just a postmodern age, but also in a new barbarism, a sort of fluorescent dark age, like the inside of a mall. Malls, remember those? And I, and I realize that that is a way to walk away from the Sermon on the Mount, to be sort of despairing about it. There's a case to be made for that. But what occurred to me while reading that article was, is there's actually something positive in what she says, in those students' reaction to it. I would make a suggestion that in many ways, those students' reaction to the sermon is a little more honest than oftentimes you and I are. Because the truth is, if, if someone really begins to take the Sermon on the Mount seriously, you're going to inevitably find yourself falling way short of being, of being what it demands. Revulsion, as it turns out, uh, is appropriate in this sermon. 
And you get signs of it all through it, especially in verse 20 when Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now look, if you don't know, the scribes and the Pharisees were, for that particular time, uh, at least in the eyes of the common folk, the most religious, the pinnacle of religiosity in their day. Honestly, there was no one that was more devout, no one that was more committed, no one that was more disciplined than these, this class of religious observers. And so Jesus says, access into my kingdom is only going to come to the people that exceed what they have done. I mean, surely somebody in the crowd gasped at that point where they were like, are you crazy? Who's going to be more spiritual and righteous than the Pharisees? The question is, what did Jesus mean by that? Well, there's a very subtle answer to that question that we'll probably get to in the weeks ahead. But for our context this morning, Jesus probably means that the truth that you live by has to be more than just external. It's got to be more than a show. In other words, these Pharisees, they were known to be righteous, yes, but they were also known to make sure that you knew that they were righteous. In other words, they were in it for the appearances, it's the reason why at the end of Matthew, when Jesus preaches the uh, Olivet Discourse in Matthew 23, he kind of captures the essence of their righteousness. In verse 25, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. So it's likely Jesus is just simply saying, I'm after the whole person, not just your externals. It's not just your compliance that I'm looking for. I want your heart. I want your motivations. I want to crawl into the spaces of your imagination. And the reason why we know this is because for the rest of the sermon, Jesus begins to contrast external obedience with inward holiness. Over and over again, he's going to say, you have heard it said, but I say to you. We'll do that every week for the next few weeks. What Jesus is giving us then is this, is this map of the internal motivation of the Christian life. And that it has to be genuine, he's going to say. And so the first topic that he goes after is without question the number one source for all of the division and the strife and the destruction that, in, that, that divides any human life. And that is anger. The problem of our anger. In other words, the most common hindrance to the good life that we've been looking at is the boiling resentment that we have towards each other. And so this morning what I want to do is I'm going to look at three things. I want to look first of all at what the Bible means by righteous anger. I want to look at what it means by unrighteous anger. And then finally, taming our anger. Let's look at that first one, righteous anger. I can make this point actually fairly quickly. Because in verse 22, Jesus says, Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Now look, one of the things that we know that Jesus cannot mean is that it is always wrong to be angry in any circumstance. He cannot mean that. The reason is because we've got lots of recordings in the New Testament of Jesus, sinless Jesus, being angry. Just a sample here. John chapter 2. Remember when Jesus goes into the money changers in the temple? It says very clearly he was angry when he got there. Mark chapter 3. Jesus is, is angry at the Pharisees for their argument that they were having over the Sabbath. In John 11, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, in verse 33 there it says that when he did so, he was angry at the people while he was. And of course, if that wasn't enough, you've got the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 who talks about the fact that there is 
wrath of God that is constantly being revealed against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. There's another obvious example, if we're going to do the Apostle Paul here, from Ephesians 4.26, when he says, look, be angry, but do not sin. Be angry and do not sin. What's interesting about that verb, be angry, that's in the imperative tense. In other words, it's a command that he's giving, which by which he means there are times in which it is absolutely appropriate to be angry. And I realize it's off-putting, but we have lots of examples in the Bible of God himself being angry. I realize people don't like to think about that because most of the time we, re- re- we remember wanton outbursts of anger when we were children and associating God with that kind of anger just doesn't seem right. But there's a premise that you've got to grasp here. When you de-angry God, you've actually lost something intrinsic to your humanity. Because all of God's commands, all of God's actions are wrapped up because we are created in his image. But most especially, you will see God's anger in Scripture directed at two things, oppression and injustice. Because in those things, as they circulate among human society, God is appropriately angry at them because of what they do to the image of God. Becky Pippert said this one time. She said, how can a good God forgive bad people without compromising himself? Does he just play fast and loose with the facts? Oh, never mind. Boys will be boys. Well, try telling that to a survivor of the Cambodian killing fields. Or try selling that to someone who lost their entire family to the Holocaust. No. To be truly good, one has to be outraged by evil and implacably hostile to injustice. Okay, so take the next step now. If we're going to be godly people, if we long to be imitators of God, as Paul tells us to be, if he is outraged by the evil around us, then it is appropriate, I would say necessary, for us to be angry about that as well. Look, the more that a parent loves its child, the more angry the parent is at any force inside their child that might destroy them or even dehumanize them. So for that reason, we can call righteous anger a move to deal with any threat any threat that moves against something that we know is lovely and something that we know is right. It's appropriate to be anger there. The first motions of a soul to right a wrong, to cure a disease, to relieve an injustice is appropriate righteous anger. It's godlike. It's interesting, when God reveals himself to Moses in Exodus 34, one of the phrases he uses to describe himself, and it appeared all the way through our liturgy this morning, is that he is slow to anger. I really love that and find that fascinating because one of the best metrics, I think, to measure whether or not my anger is righteous or unrighteous is how long it took you to get angry. (laughs) The shorter the span, if anger comes in a flash, it's probably not righteous. But if it's a slow boil that was developing over time, it's likely that there's some truth there that needs needs to be paid attention to. Are you this morning slow to anger or are you quick to anger? And look, the implications of this I think are huge because it means that if you're angry at something without cause, you're sinning. 
But it also means that if you are not angry at something that God is angry about, you're still sinning. Look, the point is this. This can include all kinds of things where every day we are assaulted by our highly connected society by claims of injustice. And so often and tragically and and, and wrongly, Christians are those, especially those who stand in the privilege in which most of us in this room do, like to look as if those oppression and injustices are someone else's problem and not the purview of the church. That's on the outside. But if it's occurring and it's actually true, it is every bit our responsibility to be angry about it. At least enough that motivates us into action to do something and to bring about healing. Look, y'all, for so many people, I feel like we're embarrassed of our anger. <laughs> we're embarrassed to even talk about it because it's just a, it's an awful thing. But if you do that, you've short-circuited the process by which healing takes place. Most of the good things that have happened in my life happened when I became angry <laughs> at something in my life that shouldn't have been there. That's godliness and what we would call righteous anger. Look, the first responsibility we have as a godly person is to search for the roots of my anger and find out whether it's righteous or not. Okay, so that's the first point, righteous anger. Secondly, though, Jesus is unpacking for us more specifically what we would call unrighteous anger, right? And it gets a really help here in verse 22 when he says this. He says, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now look, some of your translations there say that if you call someone raka, uh, that's a bad thing. That was an insult uh, that literally translated means um, you empty head. And, And the phrase that you have there translated you fool is the Greek word moros, from which we get the word moron. This is actually somebody who is, who is willfully wrong. They're denying truth that's right in front of their faces. So Jesus is saying, whether you think that someone is, is just naturally stupid or whether they're doing it on purpose, both of them have the, your interaction with them, defined by the words that come out of your mouth about them, can set you on a path to judgment and hell. Now, I remember reading this as a child and being like, okay, okay, Jesus, uh, put the gun down. Uh, You're awfully upset about these little names that we call people. But Jesus is unpacking for us the the structure of unrighteous anger in sort of saying that there are two ways to know that it's unrighteous. On the one hand, anger that is misdirected is unrighteous, but also anger that is unmeasured is unrighteous. Let me unpack those two. First of all, anger that is misdirected. Anger that's misdirected is anger that's due to the result of the simple idolatry in our hearts. You've heard me say over and over again that your heart, your motivational center, is a loving machine. It locks on to affections and and, and carries out all of its plans because of that affection. Ultimately speaking, the sinful heart is only locked on to itself, a self-lover. But... When it gets those goals and those desires blocked, we get angry. The heart gets angry. But we're not angry at the sin, we're angry at the sinner. You know, it's funny, I used to see this all the time when I was in campus ministry for so many years. It would oftentimes happen where a young lady would finally have enough of the insecurity and manipulation of her boyfriend, and so she would break up with him. 
And invariably, whenever that guy would get broken up with, his first result was anger. And I always found it curious, because up until that time, he had been pledging his absolute love and affection for her, which you would have assumed (laughs) would have been a love that said, I want what's best for you, whether it involves me or not. But the second that she turns on him, what comes out? Anger, right? What does that mean? It means that what my anger was is nothing more than the discharge of an idol that has stopped blessing me. That's what that is. I had an idol up there, and it was giving me blessing. But the moment that it stopped, I got angry. Take another one. The last time that you blew up at your small child, what what was it really about? Was that really about the the, the threat of something evil inside of them that was going to undo them? Or was it because they embarrassed you in public? Or, Or how about that teenager in high school? When they fail in high school, am I angry because I'm so enmeshed in their life that I take it personally? Because you realize that teenager realizes that you're not shouting at them. You're shouting at you. The anger is directed towards me. Because why? Because that anger there is misdirected. It's misdirected at idols instead of what God would have us to look at. But secondly, unrighteous anger is that which is unmeasured. If you've ever had an experience with anger, you know that it just feels inevitable, doesn't it? You're sucked into it in a way that you feel like you just can't stop. I've heard people talk about anger like it's water. If I could just pour it out and get it out of me, then I'll be done with it. That's actually not the way anger works. Anger is actually far more like fire than it is like water. It's going to keep consuming whatever it gets to next until some other force on the outside takes it over and puts it out. So again, why is Jesus so adamant about rooting out our anger? Because he knows that if we are created in the image of God, then the restoration that we long for can only be solved by him putting out the fire of our anger. But what we long for is the destruction of the object of my anger. He knows that. That's what we dream about, don't we? Don't we sit and play over scenarios in our head where that individual I'm angry at is shamed? Where they are canceled? (laughs) Where they are publicly hurt in some way? And Jesus is saying, if you don't stop that anger, it'll pass on and on and on and on and eventually till it destroys people. Look, when you start to dive into unrighteous anger, I I think for, for probably many of us in this room, you're slowly discovering that you have an anger problem. And I think it's important for us to be very explicit about this. I think it's important to look at those times in which we would say, you know, I might have lost a little bit of control the other day, but yeah, I I got over it. But I think it's important to say that if you ever found yourself either certainly actually or even feeling the strongest desire to hit your spouse or to strike your child out of that anger, it's time to get some help. It's time for you to go and talk to somebody. This morning, while the fire is not burning quite so hot, it's time to make a call to go speak to a trusted counselor, a pastor. Come see me or Kurt or or Melvin or Scott. And come and begin to speak and unpack what is it that's underneath this? What is it that's driving this? Have you stopped and, and looked at your daydreams that you're starting to have about hurting someone else? It's time to talk about that because if it goes unchecked, it's just going to spread. 
Now the question is, though, how am I going to do that? If, I, if I've got unrighteous anger, how is God going to unpack that in me? Great question. It brings me to my third and final point. And that is the taming of our anger. How? What does it mean for us to tame our anger? Look at what Jesus says in verse 23. He says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Man, isn't that interesting? (laughs) Jesus looks and sort of puts this uh, example that he's giving to us in the context of public worship. What's he saying? He says the first step in dealing with your anger is you have to prioritize that. It's that serious. And you know what? Prioritize it so much that it's even more important (laughs) than going to church. In other words, don't come here if there's something unresolved between you and somebody else in the body. Because what we do here is about what goes on there. So the first step in dealing with anger is to prioritize it and say, there is nothing more important for me spiritually than dealing with what's going on between me and this other person. I would argue this is exactly what the Lord's Supper is about. Do you know how before the Lord's Supper we we fence the table and we talk about how important it is to, to not come in an unworthy manner, not discerning the body? This is what it's talking about. It's talking about those unresolved anger issues that I've not been able to work through. But there's another point. I think the fact that Jesus sort of roots this in a worship experience means that there's a correlation between what I worship and what I get most angry at. I think what we're talking about in that last point is doing a a, a temper tantrum post-mortem to go back with a counselor and saying, what was I really angry at? What was really going on? Of course, the answer to that is it's probably going to be a mixture It's the nature of our human hearts that there's probably righteous and unrighteous anger in every time we get angry. But Jesus goes on to give another point in the last part of our passage. He's also saying, make sure that you deal with that anger as quickly as you can. Hebrews 12, 15 says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God so that no, quote, root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. (laughs) Trouble, yeah, no doubt. The writer there is basically saying the same thing Jesus is saying in verse 23. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. Why? Because anger is almost always going to get worse. Almost always. We love to put things off. We tell ourselves things like, uh, well, you know, time heals all wounds. Actually, no, it won't. In anger's case, time is just going to create a festering that eventually creates a hard and rotting heart that eventually becomes impenetrable. Now look, one small little side caveat. I know that Paul says, and you're going to come say this to me after the service is over, in Ephesians 4.26, he says, yes, he also says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. That's why we should sort of make sure we deal with things quickly. And that is true. However, do not read that as if every single conflict between you and your spouse must be resolved before you ever go to sleep at night. That's a false, uh, rigid interpretation of that passage. Um, The vast majority of my wife and I's conflicts have been wonderfully helped by a good night's sleep. Why? Because it gets me better in a better frame of mind to apologize the next morning for whatever I did the night before. The final way in which we deal with our anger, though, that this journey is going to take us to taming it, is to search for the end of our anger. I find this very interesting. Ask yourself the question, really, if I give my rage full-throated expression, what will I really have on the other side? 
Well, it's fascinating. People thought they were crazy, but they were a group of marketers that were hired by some social scientists uh, in Israel a number of years ago to put together an ad campaign that was going to be directed at a very right-wing, super conservative, you know, sort of almost war-mongering neighborhood in the city of Tel Aviv. The campaign was supposed to drum up support for an accord that was being written up about establishing peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians for a very hotly contested portion of the Wet Bank. Well, as the ads began to air, the fascinating thing was is the ads did not sort of talk about how important it was to stop the violence. Rather, what they did was they just encouraged more hatred. It was amazing. One ad showed these, uh, these very iconic photos of Israeli war heroes and say things like this. Without war, we wouldn't have these heroes. Uh, you know, the hero, for, in order to have real heroes, we need the conflict. You know, and they would have like Wagner's Flight of the Valkyries, dun, 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 playing in the background as they did. There was another ad that featured a, a foot soldier with a, with a machine gun petting a kitten and another soldier walking an elderly person across the street. And in the background, they played uh, uh, Louis Armstrong's What a Wonderful World. In other words, the tagline read, without war, we would never be moral. For morality to exist, we need the conflict. And this is what was amazing. It worked. <laughs> A couple of weeks later, they found out that the support for the peace measures increased by 75% in that very neighborhood. Now, why did that happen? Because in that moment, for the first time, people saw the futility of their anger. They discerned its end. Because here's the deal. Once you get angry, once it sort of grabs you on the inside, that anger has got to go somewhere. And Jesus knows that where it will oftentimes go is just to be passed on to the next person. Pain inside the heart has to go somewhere. Anger in that regard is only going to end when someone self-sacrifices. When someone absorbs the hatred intimate themselves so that they can neutralize it. I mean, come on, guys. I mean, how much more of our political rhetoric are we going to endure between each other while one party seizes power just so that they can inflict the pain of shame and embarrassment on the other party? How many generations are going to suffer because of our unwillingness to forgive our parents for the way they raised us? Because that pain has got to go somewhere unless there's a force on the inside that knows how to neutralize it. The Proverbs writer in Proverbs 25, 21 says, If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he's thirsty, give him drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head and the Lord will reward you. <laughs> I remember reading that for the first time and thought, Aha, that's what I want. You know, Instead of like lashing out at him, I'll get the burning coals to him. But that's actually not what that passage means. What the passage is saying is, is that kindness and service to the person you are angry at is the only way to neutralize it. That's it. Be good to those who harm you, Jesus says. Love your enemies, Jesus says. Why? Because in that moment, kindness and, and, and service directed at your enemy gets them thinking about their anger and where they might find a path to resolve it. Now, here's the question. Where do Christians get that kind of forgiveness? Well, you better know. 
Christians draw on that because as Jesus is talking, you ever thought about this? As Jesus is giving this instruction, he is fully aware that he is about to exercise the greatest kindness to his own spiritual enemies who will mock him with words much worse than moron or raka and who himself will know that his father's anger rests on them as well. And yet what will he do? He will love and he will serve and he will submit. He will bear the crushing hatred that was directed at him in order to neutralize it and pass it on and give us the ability to do the same thing for each other. That's the model. Here's the point. Whatever path you have to take this week with your anger has got to end at the foot of the cross because only there do we have any of the resources to be able to keep from murdering each other in our hearts or with our words or, God forbid, with our actions. Jesus is good medicine, is he not? Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, we ask that you would lead us into that. Even, Father, as we sing, may we repent, may we be honest, may we own our anger and see you on the cross bearing it all because you have been so good to us. Father, help us be good even to those people with whom we are so frustrated. Father, in the midst of it, we might hope that we would heal our land. That's what we're doing this whole study for. Bring us into the good life of healing. But it's only going to happen if your spirit gives us strength to do so. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.